aspect of the art world have I not touched on yet? If you know any arts attorneys, creative psychologists, or any other profession that somehow touches the Venn diagram of the art world, get in touch with me. Are there questions that you have sitting around that you wish were answered in order to assist you in being more successful in your creative endeavors? Tell me, and I'll reach out to those people and get them on the podcast. Send me an email at matt, M-A-T-T, at wisefoolpod.com or DM me on Instagram or Facebook. Give me some names, some contacts, some professional people that work in different aspects of the art world so that I can help you be more successful in your creative endeavors. I would appreciate your support by becoming part of our Patreon account. You can find it at patreon.com slash thewisefool. If you're enjoying the conversations and learning from the insights from our guests, I would appreciate a five-star rating, and please tell your friends to listen and subscribe also. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. As much as it pains me, I'm trying to get better at my self-promotion, so... If after hearing this conversation, you want to know more about me and my artwork, please go to my website, matthewdoles.com, M-A-T-T-H-E-W-D-O-L-S.com. If you want to know more about some of the people and businesses mentioned in this episode, links to them will be included in the show notes. Please pronounce your name correctly for me. It's Lisa Zhurkovskaya. Now, you live in Canada, correct? Correct. That does not sound like a Canadian name. No, I was born in Russia, raised and born there, but I moved to Canada 10 years ago. Okay, great. That makes a lot more sense. So one of the first things I generally ask people, because I'm always fascinated by it, is is how do people become uh, interested in the creative industries and the creative field? So was it like Mm -hmm. your parents were creative? Did you, was a good teacher, some other influences? How did you even arrive at that? It's a good question to ask because for me, like, as I mentioned, I was born in Russia. I was born in a very small city and we didn't have any galleries or museums. And I was like browsing websites. And when my family traveled, I always say like, mom, we need to go to a museum. I want to see like artworks. So then time passed. I went for an art school. So I spent four years painting. And for that, it was very like standard still life plein air when during the summer we went outside we paint and where was that it was back in russia during my high school and my parents asked me like what do you want to do when you go to university and i was like that's a really tough question like i really don't know and one of the options for me was to study abroad so i browsed through universities and i decided why not to do art history for my undergrad. So I applied and got in into University of Toronto in Canada, moved to Canada. And since then, my fascination with the art world started. Your degree is in uh, art history then? It's one of my majors. So my undergrad was art history and human geography. So I did a lot of art and architecture. And then for my master's, I did criticism and curatorial studies. Okay. My father actually is a hagiographer. 
So mm-hmm. I actually know a little bit about Russian iconography, at least. That's uh, he specializes in 13th and 14th century Russian Byzantine icons. Yes. That's the way he describes it. So. <laughs> it's the yeah. right way to describe it. Yes, totally. Great. Okay, good. It's nice to know that something rubbed off on me. So now you're a curator and of course mm-hmm. you run your podcast. For sure. So podcast started for me as like as a way to give back to the art community. I know it's so hard for artists to get a place to promote their story and their art. For magazines, you have to pay a lot of money. For galleries, same story. Everyone is busy. So I decided why not to promote local and international artists, have a chat. And my podcast is not like just a general talking about what you paint. It's more targeted to talk about the business side of being an artist. Like how can you apply for calls for art? How approach galleries? How to promote it on social media? Things we don't discuss at art schools, but artists have to do every day. And it's called Curator on the Go podcast. That you go. I forgot to mention the name. It's very important. Yes. Yeah, I mean, that's sort. Of, a lot of that is the foundation of also why I created this podcast, but I use it as a, basically I am an academic and it is mm-hmm. my job to teach them. And I realized that I have no idea how the contemporary art world works. It's changed rather dramatically because I entered academia 20 years ago and I've sort of been in my little ivory tower of academia and I mm-hmm. wasn't keeping with the contemporary changes and trends and and technologies and all these other kinds of things. So I figured if I need to learn it, why not make a podcast where everybody else can basically hear me learning it from the people who are actually doing it. So that's you. (laughs) Uh, One of my biggest pet peeves about the contemporary art world is the need to for visual artists to be able to eloquently write about their artwork. For sure. It's the number one thing to do before you even start thinking about like, I need to apply, you need to have your bio statement, your artist statement. And those are two different things. And artists need to know that bio is your background and your statement is why you're creating your art and what's the message behind your art practice. Okay, wait. So a bio is not the same as a CV. So it's more like a no. written, like a two or three paragraph thing that sort of summarizes your CV and sort of points exactly. out the highlights. Exactly. Exactly. Totally. And CV is like as a standard CV if, as everyone is applying for job, but bio is like the, you spell out where you went for school, what you did for exhibitions, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Okay. So when it comes to artist statements, now keep in mind, I'm in academia. Mm-hmm. I have taught them. I have had to write them myself. I am. It is the most miserable task I ever go through other than just pure paperwork of any sort. I hate paperwork. Mm-hmm. So beyond paperwork, because I just finished a grant that I tried to apply for that took me three weeks to fill out all of the forms that it, mm-hmm. it, because it was also in another language and I had to translate everything. It was ridiculous. But writing about your own art is incredibly difficult as an artist because we're so close to it. We're so attached to it. We're so emotionally involved in it. Oftentimes, not everybody, but most of us are. How should we structure an artist statement to be engaging and evocative for a general viewer or reader? Because a lot of times, 
there's sort of a, I don't know, I'd call it like almost like three tiers. There's sort of the highly intellectual academic mm -hmm. sort of artist statement that sort of quotes Freud and whatever else kind of, you know, uses Latin phrases and mm -hmm. is really pompous and arrogant. Then there's sort of the, I wrote a thing for a jury or a granting organization that I know this, the committee is a bunch of other practicing artists and curators and whatever. And then there's another sort of a level of an artist statement that you write. That's like, let's say you're applying for a grant or a residency where the people who are reading it are not in the arts industry. Totally agree. And of course, like if you're applying for a residency or a commercial gallery, for example, where the visitors will be just general public most of the time, you're not going to use a lot of jargon. You're not going to use a lot of academic theory, etc. It's more about, I would say, like your feelings and your emotions and your main media, how you do it and why you do it, what you want the audience to see when they look at your work. But when you apply for grants, and if you're thinking that your art is more for museums, because I work with a lot of artists who say, like, I really don't want to sell through commercial galleries. I see my art being right away in museums, and it's a great, ambitious goal, and some artists will do that. So in that case, your artist statement will be totally different. But that's a that's an unrealistic goal to, like, start being an artist and say, I'm going to be in museums. I mean we have to go through some process. There is a step-by-step -step process. You can't just literally come out of art school and say, I'm going to be in institutions. It can be an option to things if you have a contact in the museum that you can work with right away, or if you start with like working with non-for-profits more than commercial world and like differentiate yourself as in like selling and like showing in that platforms. Should I be asking you more questions about We'll call it like institutional art or commercial art. Which do you have more knowledge of? I worked in commercial world for the six, for for the last six years, but I've also worked with non for profit, so you know both, but more about commercial. Okay, great commercial. So let's get into the nature of how and why certain galleries choose certain artists to create relationships with. Depends on the gallery. <laughs> Because always, so yes. like from experience. <laughs> um, so the latest gallery I'm working at right now, so they never have an open call for art, and I was super surprised to know that. Saying like, why? Like you, you can see so many new artists, and you don't need to spend a lot of time on research. And they told me like, we had a lot of artists who will come after the call for art will be closed and say, oh, my art is better than what you have on the walls right now. Why you didn't get me in? So to avoid that confusion and all the situations, they started like researching and inviting artists to the shows. But other galleries, I would say um, more emerging galleries do open call for arts mm -hmm. because they don't have a base or like a list of artists they can reach out right away. So I would say two ways, reaching out directly or call for art. Your question was how they select artists. So depends on the gallery. Some will say like if it's a contemporary, they will also always select only contemporary art. Or if they focus on a specific medium like sculpture or photography, etc. But I mean, when it gets down to the nitty gritty, so like let's yeah. say 
there's two artists that are sort of they're they're deci- trying to decide who they want to represent mm-hmm. then they say and they say okay well this th- and let's say they're both the same medium so let's mm-hmm. say they're both painters and let's say their price points exactly the same mm-hmm. what are some of the sort of like the little things that artists can do to make them selves somehow a little bit more attractive for a gallery okay? mm-hmm. so like what, what are those, those subtle things the technical side of creating the artwork there should be something special like you don't need to copy the masters there should be something special <laughs> something innovative in a way and well done like usually use gallery canvas like white border canvas it shouldn't be like a cheapy cheap one Mm-hmm. Um, so something gessoed, archival. Yeah, exactly. And then a lot of galleries also look at your past exhibitions. Where are you represented right now? If there is like a conflict of interest too, that's very important. Mm. How active you are in social media too. Really? Yes. They actually, it's they really They actually funny. go and see how many followers you have. How often do you post your works on social media? Are you active with your collectors? Can you bring your collectors to the gallery type of thing? That saddens me greatly because I just had this discussion quite literally yesterday mm-hmm. with somebody else, which is that they said, oh, I know somebody who applied to a gallery and the gallery said no to them because they didn't have enough followers on social media. And it, it's... It's hard because keep in mind, I'm slightly of an older generation. I'm Mm -hmm. 46. And in my generation, the idea was the galleries do all that for the artists. And it wasn't the artist's Mm -hmm. job to do all this stuff. But this seems to have now flipped a little bit. And the script is now that the artists need to create the, the buzz about their work and create the collector base and all that. And then basically hand it over to the gallery. Absolutely, totally agree on that. And that's why a lot of artists want to work with art agents. Like on the side, from being a gallery curator right now, I represent a few artists. So I work as a manager most of the time, like talking to potential clients, promoting their work, helping them with social media, because gallery um, doesn't do that for them. And they just expect you to come and put everything on the plate and they just use it. Does that, that doesn't seem wrong to you. It seems wrong to me. Okay, good. Okay, I'm just making sure. I'm yes. Like, Come on, this is wrong. Because it should be both the gallery and the artist should work hard. Like before, artists would stay in the studio most of the time. The gallery will do all of the hard work. But we understand that now it's the time where you have to be active on social media. You have to show your painting process. What do you do? What are you inspired by? To keep the collectors interested in your practice and give them like a small intro to your life as an artist. Yeah, that's really hard for me. I'm a very private person. I know that's ironic as I'm basically spilling my entire life in a <laughs> podcast, but in general, I'm a very private person. So like showing pictures and posting social media about the practice of the studio and the, you know, potentially even my private life is like, yeah, I'm not okay with that. But it seems like you have to be okay with it to some extent these days. You have to. And like, I personally have to also show myself, promote myself as a curator or an art agent. And when I go to my Instagram statistics, the number one, the highly ranked photos are me next to the artwork. 
not just the artwork, not just me, but me in the gallery setting. So I have to be in the photos for people to see them. Yeah, but what if you're not very photogenic like me? Like that's not, that, that, I feel like the deck's sort of stacked against me a little bit or anybody <laughs> who's not photogenic. And that, you know, a beautiful young girl is always going to get more likes than some older you know, guy <laughs> standing next to a piece of artwork. That's kind of unfair. So that's a good point because not everyone wants to be in front of the camera, but I usually say like people want to know who is behind the business or the account and like be you should see the Instagram as the grid of the first nine images is what people will see because we don't have time to scroll down the pages. So your photo should be one of that nine at least. <laughs> that, that's just painful to me. Like my profile picture is actually a picture of me behind a photographic uh, silver umbrella. So you mm -hmm. can't even see my face. So you're more like a Banksy type of style staying behind I, the scenes. I'm just not very photogenic. So like, no, no, I always look angry in photos, even when I'm not, or I look crazy. Maybe you never work with a proper photographer because they can help a lot to you. The irony is I'm a photographer. Okay. <laughs> so I know it's hard. Let's stay on social media for mm -hmm. a little bit because this is one of my biggest pet peeves and you seem to have some knowledge that I obviously don't have. So when it comes to social media, how do you do it? Like, I mean, because it, it's I, I've learned a little bit. Okay, keep mm -hmm. in mind the podcast is called The Wise Fool. So I have mm -hmm. some wisdom, but I have a lot of holes in my knowledge, my foolish side. So it's not about necessarily what you post, but it's about what other people repost or sort of pass on. So it seems like it's not, it's most social media is not about the sort of the individual connection, mm -hmm. but it's the, it's the advancement of that, the repost, the share, the whatever, the thing that goes past that. How do you get that to happen? A lot of people do quotes right now. And I personally don't like the accounts where you go and you just see plain text for me that doesn't work it's the best way to get reposts but is it really it is but That's it depends so on the niche and like your industry if you're like a personal coach for example and you inspire people by posting quotes of great people yes that will work for me or any artist if you will start posting a lot of quotes it will take away from what you're doing it will take away from your art so I see it more into when you go to statistics of your posts and see how many people save it so they can go back. Okay, but wait a second. First of all, when you're talking about statistics, mm -hmm. the if I if I understand my stuff correctly, because I try to watch it, I have a personal account. Oh, so we're, mm -hmm. we're just going to talk Instagram first of yes. all. There's a personal account doesn't offer statistics. No. A business account offers yeah. statistics. So if you even want to see these statistics, you Absolutely. have to create a business account because otherwise they don't offer it for personal mm -hmm. accounts. So that's a huge thing because I think a lot of people don't even know that they that if they want to see sure. them, they have to do that. I, I'll be honest, I didn't until I started looking into it. I'm like, <laughs> why am I not getting statistics? That's why. So, yes. Okay. And with business, it helps a lot because you can automatically post to Facebook. Whatever you post on Instagram, it will go right away to Facebook. So you can be your followers there too. Right. Because they're owned by the same company these days. Yeah. 
oh, there's so many questions I have about this because, like, the, my biggest mm-hmm. problem is is and I've and I I have railed on this in the podcast in the past, but it's the fact that the arts world in the general in the past used to be about connections and networks, like that was mm-hmm. the primary way. It seems like now we're sort of relegated to worrying about the algorithm. You know, so like whether it's social media, search engine optimization, Facebook, we're, mm-hmm. we're we have to f- somehow play the game of the algorithm first in mm-hmm. order to even get a face to face to be able to have make network t- connections with people. I would disagree a little bit about that because a lot of people I know and myself, like I know the algorithm and like things that will help my account be higher in rank for my followers, but. I see Instagram as uh, my contact book, for example. I have all the artists I work with. I have all of the collectors I work with and industry people. And anytime I need to ask a question, the first place I will go to is Instagram because it's the quickest way right now to shoot a message and get a response back. So most of my conversations right now happen on Instagram. So I see it as a business platform where you meet new people, where you stay in contact. So it's not only about algorithm. Okay, I am so doing it wrong because I don't talk to anybody on Instagram. You should. So <laughs> I, I, well, Especially now. True. Check out with people. How is everyone doing? It's so out of my norm. Like I... I I imagine that if I contacted somebody out of the blue via social mm-hmm. media right now, they're going to assume I'm dying. They're going to be like, <laughs> what's wrong? Are you dying? Why are you talking to me after not talking to me for eight years? So, I mean, and, but that gets to part of the issue that I have with, mm-hmm. you know, contemporary arts industry stuff is that the need to have and build a strong network and mm-hmm. continually nurture that network. Yes. Like I am excellent at meeting people. I can mm-hmm. walk into a room and I can know everybody's life story in a half an hour. Like that's not a problem. But the problem is, is that maintenance of those relationships. Mm-hmm. Cause like I hear stories about people say, Oh, do an email list. Oh, do and send out a newsletter. And other people say like, don't send out newsletters. And other people say, you know, dude, uh, God, I don't even all the different things, create Facebook groups, whatever, all these different things. Mm-hmm. And none of them sound appealing to me. And so like, the question is, is sort of like how now in this day and age, can you, nurture these professional relationships and but the key thing for me is is like you don't want to keep it super professional because then it just sounds like you're being conniving and cunning Mm -hmm. and you're using these people on the flip side of it you don't want to be too friendly and personal because then well they don't necessarily want to do business with friends so like there's a, a middle ground somewhere that i cannot figure out how to maintain so what would be your advice for that kind of thing it's, it's a tough question because especially for me, I get a lot of inboxes in my Instagram or like even in my mail saying, if you have some time, can you check my portfolio? Give me some opinion about my artwork. Please, first of all, introduce yourself. I want to know who you are, why you're writing to me. Like I get it every day. And still like talking about being friends and business a lot of artists who I worked with before, they will ask me a lot of questions or ask me for consultations. And I would say like, you know that I charge for that because that's what I do. Like 
um, we are friends, we've been working together, but I can't give my advice for free all the time. So I have to be very cautious about like being friends and because it's what I do for my, for my life. Like, that's what my job to help artists. Right. Well, that, but that's my point is like, it's, it's very difficult because like a lot of people who enter the creative industries, we do it, you know, for lack of a better word, because we like the artistic community. Mm -hmm. We like the people. We, yes. we enjoy being around them. They're our tribe. They think like us. They, you know, dress like us, whatever. <laughs> so it's really hard to sort of, as I said, like sort of maintain that proper balance of mm -hmm. professionalism to friendliness to, to find that beautiful little golden part in the middle there where like you can – annoy them enough but not too much you can be professional enough but not yeah. too much and you can be friendly enough but not too much because uh, you know from my own experiences i have been there are times in my life where i have been a conniving manipulative bastard and i have tried to climb the artistic ladder by stepping on people and, and trying to you know better myself by using mm -hmm. people it doesn't work I have also been super friendly, partied, done drugs with people, like all kinds of crazy shit. That doesn't work either. <laughs> what are some of the things like, so do you recommend email newsletters and doing email stuff? Do you like, what are some, some methods mm -hmm. of keeping in touch and nurturing these networks without either becoming too friendly or too annoying? I love newsletters personally. I don't like to get them every day, but I would say keep them to the times when you have a new collection or you have an exhibition. Don't send too much of them. Like don't send a lot and try to excite people with the newsletters because I know a lot of artists who I work with who sell works through newsletters, especially during the holidays when they have a special collection or special promotion. And people tend to be excited to be the first one to know before like you post to social media or anywhere else in the gallery that you are the first one to see the email. Oh, I will get this because this is a discount. Yeah. Everybody loves exclusivity. Yes. So I would say use newsletters, build your newsletter list because you never know who that person will be and when they would like to buy your work and just nurture the relationship by sh sharing some personal stories too of your travels maybe or like when you walk in in the park and you get inspired by something share it with your collector because they like it because they want to know what's in the brain of the artist why you're different why you're special type of thing Okay, but I mean, I can think of some artist friends of mine who are special, but maybe not in a good way. So I mean, there, there's there are fine lines on like what that special thing is. Like so, like how, how, these days, because what's hard for me is also like I grew up in Washington D.C. Mm -hmm. um, and we had a pretty good, strong arts community when I grew up there mm -hmm. and went to school there and all that. But now, and that was before the internet. That's how old I am. Mm -hmm. So like before the internet. But now, like literally, whenever you do anything, you're competing with the whole world. So like it, it it's a lot different pressure. Like it's it's easy to be a big fish in a small pond, but now like the pond is well, the whole world. So mm -hmm. how can you somehow stand out? What's that? What are some of those unique things that can make you stand above the the rest? 
Depends on what platform we're talking about. Let's talk about Instagram for a while. We um, love Instagram. It's fun. Yes, because I believe it's the number one platform because Facebook is more like a chat for many artists and many people. Like you stay in contact with your relatives, with your family, and then some of your followers will be there, but they're not going to be buying or commenting a lot. So Instagram is more a platform to build your collector artist collector, artist bio, artist whoever, like art professional relationships. So I personally like to see a lot of videos of artists painting in the studio. I like to see the behind the scenes process of how someone is creating the work. It's it's very special and you don't need to be in in the video. You can project it from the top where you can see just your hand or just part of your hat and you will paint. So you technically know, don't need to be exposed as we talked about the photos, but you can still show what you're doing in a studio. I lo- don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. I love those little sort of like, you know, uh, you know, an entire painting collapsed into 30 seconds. Like those mm-hmm. are really fun little yes. videos kind of things, but it's like, but what, what's the, the, it's the next thing. It's the, mm-hmm. how does that turn into a sale? You need to write in your post that it's available for sale. If someone looks and see this is the title and they don't know whether it's like it's sold or it's available or it's just your study, so there is no call for action. Wow, you really did you, you did study marketing. You're using all the great buzzwords, call to action. <laughs> I have no education in marketing, but like I self-study and I, I'm fascinated by how you can promote and really see the results of promotion. So I truly believe that you have to right now. Okay. I have a personal opinion. Now it's Mm -hmm. totally, I have no scientific data. I have literally no data on this whatsoever, but this is my opinion. I believe there's a price point that sells well Mm -hmm. online. Like basically there's a, there's a a ceiling of an, Mm -hmm. well, actually I'm going to take that back. There are sort of two different ceilings. There's a a, a low price point. So up to eh, let's say 500 euros, Mm -hmm. $500, whatever sells pretty easily online. And then from 500 euros up to like, I don't know, maybe up to like 10,000, nobody buys those things online. And then over 10,000, like mm-hmm. suddenly when it becomes a blue chip piece, yeah, people will buy those online because they it's prestigious already. You know, it's got its own inherent value somehow. So it on the one hand, it's great that we could easily sell affordable priced artworks, mm-hmm. but that's not necessarily what every artist makes. And so they can't necessarily mm-hmm. make a living through just that kind of thing like i'm i'm thinking of painting friends of mine who do like large-scale paintings and like they cost like four or five thousand euros mm-hmm. five four or five thousand dollars whatever and that's to me that's of a price point that's difficult to sell online i'm not saying impossible but more difficult it is and even for the galleries too like a lot of artists right now they have two sections on their website like prints or affordable arts, and then they will have their fine arts that will start from a thousand dollar and going up. So I know that a lot of people, they might not have a lot of sales on the website, but they will have a lot of commissions by people looking on the website, knowing the price points and being comfortable. They might not be comfortable, just click the button and say, I want to buy it, but they will contact the person and say, I really like this. Can you do it? But without cream, for example. And I'm okay with it. With my dog in it. Oh, with my dog. Oh, 
whatever. <laughs> it's horrible. But that brings up an interesting question because I've had this debate with, well, I don't really care either way about this, but I've had this discussion with other galleries. Mm -hmm. Some, there's a, I don't know, movement, debate, whatever, with galleries about whether or not to put prices of artwork online. Have you heard about this? I've heard about this, but I truly believe that it's important to have prices online because you want to build a trust and it's easier for people to stay on the website or just go right away, just shut it down because you're not comfortable with paying this price. But if you're okay and you know, like, I like the style, I like the works and I'm okay with the price, let's stay here, browse and maybe reach out to an artist. But without knowing the price, they just guess or I don't feel comfortable because I don't know what they will be charging. I don't have time to email them or call them or I'm not comfortable even talking to them. My personal opinion is if if they don't give a price, I can't afford it. Probably. That's, yeah. and, and their side of it oftentimes is if you need, if you, if you're concerned about the price, you can't afford it. Yes. Another question I'm always asked is about the discounts the galleries give to their clients. Number one question. And like in, in the gallery I'm working right now, uh, the last week of each show we have, we put 10, 15% off of the Publicly work. you tell people that? Yes, on the labels. So I was very surprised to see that. It's the first gallery I work in and I see that, but they sell very well. But from my point of view, devalues art a little bit because you right away see it as like a gift shop a little bit because you see discounts. But if this is a way to sell more and artists are okay to share the discount, maybe it's a good tactic too. Well, but there's the given nature that, I mean, anybody who has bought art, so we're assuming somebody has already mm -hmm. bought art in the past. I mean, art already has a 10 to 15% uh adjustable pricing mm -hmm. built into it because yeah. almost anybody that has ever bought art knows they can ask for a discount, mm -hmm. which I hate. I, I, I hate that that even exists. Like okay, I want to go to the grocery store and negotiate <laughs> for the price of my bread and my milk. Why, why <laughs> is it that art can be negotiated for pricing? That's just ridiculous. I know. I usually say if it's your collector that you sell like three, four five pieces before, there is a way for giving this discount as an appreciation. But if it's someone new, you never sell the piece to them. Just sell it as a full price as you will sell anywhere else. Yeah, but the galleries need to earn their money, so they need to make the sale. So like, yeah. they're going to be incentivized because they need their income. And it's not about the artist at that point at that point but and that's fine i get that i'm not you know i'm a pro gallery person i like mm -hmm. galleries as long as the galleries do the job that is worth the amount of money they're getting for doing the job yes totally <laughs> a lot of galleries don't do enough work to equate to the amount of money that they take yeah if they're active if they say send newsletters if they promote their artists and social media if they host receptions they need to do things. Buy the alcohol, do all that. Sometimes like I'm against having alcohol because people <gasps> just come to drink and eat and just go home. So a lot of times like we do them from, I don't know, maybe once or three months we'll have alcohol for like special occasions. Like in March we have, we celebrated women artists. So it was 
dedicated so you, to women. You have drinking for women artists. Okay. <laughs> so we had wine. <laughs> Make it a little bit special. But most of the time I see like you spend a lot of money on alcohol. You, you try to get sponsors, but you can't ask them every month. Please donate some alcohol. And then by the end of the day, you spend a lot of money. You spend a lot of efforts. People just drink and go home. So now, and I've heard a lot in New York and in the U.S. in general right now, a lot of galleries try to have no alcohol at all at exhibitions and to have it more about the conversation and experience of actually working, like yeah, looking. But the conversation is sort of uh, <laughs> enhanced with the alcohol most times. It's lubricated with the, yeah, the social I also lubrication. see, notice like that there are not a lot of sales during the reception. It's either before or after. I had a time I was working in a gallery in San Francisco and we had this raging party where we ended up serving vodka by the time the night was done. It was ridiculous. <laughs> and uh, this guy ended up buying a piece of art and he, he was just like, oh, I love it. I love it. And then he came back the next morning and was like, um, my, my wife needs me to return that. And so like, we literally had to refund him his money the next day. So yeah, I mean, there are problems with it sometimes. Mm -hmm. Unless you can convince a client because one time we had an event in the gallery and a husband bought a piece of art for his wife. And she came and say like, why? Why? Why you didn't ask me? Maybe I didn't like it. Why you spend this money? Like I had to explain to her like, this is your first piece. You became an art collector. And it's a beautiful work by this artist. Just be excited. So she was okay, but like we had some times like that. Yeah, eventually she was okay. Yeah. They didn't come back. So I assume she was okay. Hmm. Okay. So, so let's shift a little bit. So you talked about you being an art agent. This mm -hmm. is a term that I feel like is about maybe 15, 20 years old. It's not a, it's not a, hasn't been around for centuries kind of term, like a mm -hmm. gallerist or a curator necessarily. So give me a little background. What exactly do you define be, being an art agent as? I would say like I wear a lot of hats when I am an art agent. Like I will help with social media marketing, with trying to get um, promotions in magazines or interviews for podcasts or for any shows. I will also help artists sell work get if they're like life painters for example get some events where they can provide their services sometimes i also curate shows for them so i do a lot of things or i help with writing the statements and all these documents applying for shows and calls for art so i do a lot of <gasps> things wait you help them write statements and all this i help because sometimes they will say like this is what i think about my art can you read it out and say so i will give my ideas to you but like maybe they didn't mention what's their main medium but they have to explain that or they never mentioned the message so i'll give like hints and things to write to work on but like i will never write the whole statement well that's what i was getting to so like my point is is like it's like a mentor in a way Right. I mean, fr from conversations I've been having with people, the, some people say artist statements must be written by artists, period. That's the mm -hmm. end of that. Other people I've spoken to say that artist statements can be written by writers on behalf of the artists. Mm -hmm. So that writer could be a curator yeah. uh, or just an author or just whatever. But like, But basically somebody else can do it on their behalf. What do you think about that? 
There is not a rule that one is better than another. I feel like it's more what the artist wants to get and if they want to, to use their voice as the main voice or they want to have a voice of a professional. For example, like I worked with a photographer who wasn't from Canada and his first language is Korean. So he told me like, can you write a statement for me? So I wrote a statement. He told me like, I don't feel like it represents my practice because it's not how I say or write. So it helped him to understand and like write his own personal statement based on how he phrases and how he speaks. So basically. Uh, I'm trying to ask because yeah. I would gladly have somebody else write my <laughs> artist statements. Like, oh my God, they are the worst. I hate writing artist statements so much. Like, basically, my position on mm -hmm. it is if I wanted to write about my artwork, I would have been a writer. Mm -hmm. But I chose to be a visual artist because that's my you know, my, my way of expressing things to the world. And so like having to take something like a visual art piece that I put my heart and soul and my emotion and my craftsmanship and everything into creating something that expresses something visually to have to then describe it in writing seems sort of the antithesis of mm -hmm. the fact that I'm a visual artist. Yeah. Maybe like it's a problem for a lot of artists because they don't have people to talk like professionals to talk about what they're doing. So what I do, like I jump on a call or I meet with an artist in person and I will do like an interview type of thing. What do you do? Why do you do it? Like explain if like I am just general person staying in a gallery and asking about your work, how you will define it to me. And I will make notes and then this is what you just told me. Just write a statement. Oh yeah, I was. I had a friend in grad school that he he had to write his artist statement. Mm -hmm. He asked me for help because he just wanted somebody to talk with, and I literally just sat there for almost three hours. And he would just go on and on and on. Oh, my artwork's about this. Oh, my artwork's <laughs> about that. And then he and then anytime he would pause, I would just go, "Why?" Mm -hmm. And then he would go on and on and on and on for another <laughs> like twenty minutes. And then I just go, "Why?" And then he would just go. And then at a certain point, he just suddenly said, "Oh my god." I got it. And he just figured all I literally, all I kept doing to him was just say, why? Until he figured it out for himself. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And I know a lot of artists also do the major mistake of just copying someone's statements, but it's not People the way. Do that? Yes. That's ridiculous. Well, first of all, that's plagiarism. But second of all, that's ridiculous. That's very bad thing to do. And they just go like type in the Google or they use some like their friends thing. Like, no. Don't do that. No, that's just horrible on or so like many levels. Or like standard things to use in artist statement. They will Google these things and you will have like very standard artist statements. Yeah, I know. I, I actually do portfolio reviews mm -hmm. for a, a web, an online website. I do these anonymous portfolio reviews. And I can't tell you how many references to Freud and Kant and whatever other pompous philosopher is of fashion right now, or a Latin quote or mm -hmm. a quote from a, a, some great old master or something like this. And the moment I read those, I just go, oh, like it's just, it loses all of its air and its gravitas. It, it loses complete meaning when you basically just quote somebody else or do some highly intellectual statement to try and make me think you're smarter when really being smart or well-read or any of this kind of stuff has nothing to do with whether I like your artwork or not. Like, exactly. 
like liking somebody's artwork, appreciating it, engaging with it, wanting to buy it and have it in your home and live with it is about connecting with it, not uh, not sort of respecting it. Exactly. I totally agree on that. And another thing, a lot of artists write a whole, I don't know, paragraph or a few about their childhood or any unnecessary information you might not need to know. Oh, but shit. They think my, mine, mine has my childhood in it. So I should take that out. <laughs> Make it relevant. As long as, for example, I, I will give you an example. Like someone was born in a city like in New York, like surrounded by tall buildings, not as much nature. When they moved to another part of US where they were surrounded by nature, they moved to California and they started painting because they realized how beautiful it is and in comparison to like the concrete jungle where they the spending. concrete jungle is gorgeous in its own way. <laughs> in, I in don't its know own what you're way. talking about. But anyways, go on. <laughs> so it makes sense to mention that experience in your artist statement and how it's like made a reflection on what you're doing right now. When I started working, it was totally a surprise for me how the art work, uh, how the art world was going because I got my education like I, I was doing the academia, basically for my undergrad, like art history. I was thinking like I will probably work in a big art gallery, museum as someone like writing about an artwork. And my first job, I got an internship right after I finished my undergrad into a commercial gallery. So my first day when I went for an interview. The artist was well-dressed because she's a performance artist. And she was opening the bottle of champagne, giving me a glass of champagne, saying, welcome. So this is the gallery. So the whole vibe of the commercial art world was so, I don't know, where I am right now. Is it the right place for me? But it turned out... It's not out, for everybody, no. Yes. There are a lot of things that I can use my skills, like my business skills, my marketing skills where in a non-for-profit or another museum that might not be of as much use. Even knowing where you fit in that world mm -hmm. is difficult. Like, and it takes making some mistakes. Like, for uh, sure. Because, I mean, you know, I'm thinking of some artists that think they're institutional artists when really they're commercial artists and vice versa. People mm -hmm. who are in commercial galleries that really should be elevated, in my case, like I... I put that as a tiered thing. So like commercials, a certain level and institutional, I actually put above it, but that's my snobbery, but the people are in the wrong place sometimes. And they don't. And so it, it, it but also it, it can manifest in other ways, which is like you, you can be exhibiting in, I'm trying to think like uh, Brazil and you're mm -hmm. in a, in a lower level place, uh, exhibition space, whatever, whereas you maybe incredibly have a great collector base and great respect in France or Germany or something like this. So there's location also has a lot to do with all of this stuff. Totally agree. And another uh, question that I'm always asked by artists, like, should I say no sometimes to opportunities or should I accept every exhibition, invitation, etc.? If you're maybe starting out, make sure you know and make a research about the gallery. And But when you're a more like mid-career established artist, you have to make choices. Okay. I got a question because yeah. you're on the other side of this. Define young versus mid-career. What is the difference? It's not about age. It's about how many years you've been painting as a professional artist. 
you may be painting for 25 years, but as a hobby. It wasn't your career, but if you decided, so from today, I will start promoting my works, I will start painting and sell my works. So this is the time when you start being a professional artist. Wow. Then I've only been a professional artist for two years. But I never say um, that artists should announce that they're emerging artists. Like you can say that I've been painting professionally for two years, but never put a title on yourself. Because it's not as important whether you're like an emerging, you've been painting for three years. The more important thing is what you do. What's your practice? Hmm. Interesting. That didn't really answer my question. <laughs> the, the, reason, well, the reason why I'm asking is because <laughs> the younger, young artists, I'm putting air quotes mm -hmm. on this, is often equated to age. Mm -hmm. You know, like I see constantly grants and, and residencies and things like this, or even exhibitions mm -hmm. that are, you know, young artists. And they say basically under 30 or under 35, but 35 is as far as they push mm -hmm. young artists. But so, but that implies that anybody over, let's say 30 or 35 is now a mid-career artist. Maybe it's because different. Because they're past it yeah. in some way. But yet I know some people that are not mid-career artists who are 60. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, like, so like, so, but my question is like, what defines that mid-career? I mean, I know what the next level is, which is basically a sort of professional mm -hmm. level, which basically means, and the quantifiable one for me on that is that your income, your sustainable income comes through your art that defines mm -hmm. you sort of as that net, that top level of an artist. Of course, in there above that there's blue chip, but, but it's that difference between sort of emerging and mid career that I always find very mm -hmm. soft. Yeah. It, I really want there are different to different ways of definition. What I personally use is the number of years uh, artists have been practicing. So between like one to three years, it's going to be an emerging artist. Between three and six, it's going to be mid-career artists. Six and onwards is going to be an established artist. Okay. I'll give you a really good example. Mm -hmm. I've been an artist for 20 years, but I'm not the top of the... I'm, what's the last one you gave? What was the third one? Established? I'm not an established artist. I don't think I am. Maybe I am. I don't know. But I don't... But that's the thing is mm -hmm. like... I can't define myself as an established artist. Somebody else has to define me as mm -hmm. that. But what's your definition of an established artist? Established artist would be somebody who has gallery representation or or has, let's say, even up to like 50% of their income coming from the production and sale of their art or grant grant recipients or residencies or whatever kind of thing. Like it's up to mm -hmm. somewhere, you know, between nothing to 50% of their income. But if you decide to be an artist who don't want to work with the gallery, who just want to sell independently all the time, they don't believe in the gallery structure. So that doesn't fit your well, definition. It's still about income. It's still about income. income. It's, not, it's not about where it comes yeah. from. But yeah, I mean, because like I've been doing it for 20 years, but I don't fit, uh, you know. But on the other hand, I also changed mediums mm -hmm. over the course of my career as well. So I started as a photographer and now mm -hmm. I would probably be sort of more of a collage painter kind of a thing. So like, I believe that I sort of, you know, for lack of a better word, made yet another mistake in my own career. I have many mistakes in my career. If you listen to my podcast, you'll hear many of them. So 
this is yet another mistake I made in my career, which is I changed mediums rather mm-hmm. dramatically. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that has dramatically changed the not just clients, but basically people who appreciate mm-hmm. my work. So like to a certain extent, when you if you change mediums, you almost have to change your entire fan base, clientele, network, whatever it is, because oftentimes people who like bronze sculptures are not going to like oil paintings kind mm-hmm. of things. Like this is another difficult thing that a lot of uh, artists feel like they have, once they get set into a certain either subject matter or mm-hmm. medium that they have to stay there their whole lives. That's a good point to talk about because a lot of artists say like, oh, I need to create a signature style that everyone will recognize. And then if it sells well, I will continue making this signature style till the end of they die, basically. Yes. And I will make it in colors that match your sofa and your drapes. Yes. <laughs> Another point of view for artists who've been photographers, for example, for 15, 20 years, and now they became painters like yourself. What to do with their website? Do they need to have two websites? Do they need to put it on one website, but different sections? How to explain it to people? So I usually say one website because it's your practice. It's your two different mediums. Whoever likes photography will go to photography section. Same to painting. It's part of your journey. You don't need to differentiate and put same name to different websites. And then I just removed all my photography. I just took it all students, off. Students, it's part of who you are. Gone. For example, exist. if you imagine like you have an opportunity to make a retrospective exhibition about your practice throughout the years. Well, then they can come to my studio and I'll show them that stuff, <laughs> but I'm not putting it out there. <laughs> I think you're making a mistake here. <laughs> Fair enough. It's yet another mistake I make and it's fine. Okay. <laughs> so you're saying I should, so you're saying, so like if an artist works in multiple mediums that maybe mm-hmm. like, so now keep in mind, I also teach web design. So they should create major um, tabs or na- menu navigations that basically mm-hmm. say mediums, basically. So like, so yeah, they work in multiple say, mediums yes. because I redesigned my website about two years ago on the advice of another mm-hmm. art consultant who told me the idea that, that you should put it in chronological order. So oldest at the bottom, newest at the top, and then she had me separate it. I don't even want to get into the whole semantics of how she had me separate it because now it seems so wrong. But mm-hmm. the, so, so you're saying that like basically when a person builds a website, let's say mm-hmm. they should design, because like what I'm hearing from you is design it so that it's as easy as possible for somebody who doesn't necessarily know anything about me or about my work Mm -hmm. to find something that they would like. Yes. It's like, it's your online portfolio. It's your online business card or place for people to learn about you if they don't know or don't have an opportunity to talk to you in person. And like showing different mediums is the way to show the versatility. Maybe someone will go to your photography, for example, page and say, oh, maybe he's not practicing because the year is 2015. He stopped. But I want to commission something of a photography piece. Okay. If you accept commissions. I don't. No, I tr- I did I did a commission one time and it was the worst experience of my life. Actually, it's not true. Worst experience of my life was the one time I actually agreed to do a wedding. I will oh. never 
ever photograph a wedding again. And it's, don't get me wrong, it had nothing to do with the wedding party or the wedding. It was just the stress of the the pressure on me Mm -hmm. to get everything right. It was uh, too much for me. I, I couldn't handle it. So yeah, that's the worst. But commissions are awkward. I find commissions to be Mm -hmm. awkward because like, I'm going to come off as a complete art snob here because this is just what I do. The commissions to me are when basically a person, a client in the world says, I want, I want something and I'm going to hire this artist as a tool to get the thing that I want to be Mm -hmm. made. So basically I'm not artistic, so I'm just going to hire this artist to do the, to make something that I want and has nothing to do with them. It's, it's a one opinion. I know a lot of people say like, oh, I want to have my family portraits and I don't want to print my photograph. I just want someone to paint my faces and just create a beautiful background around. And when I was young, my parents hired a, a lovely artist, came in, did a, fa- a painted family portrait for mm-hmm. us, and we loved it. And we still love that portrait to this day, probably more so than all the photographs of mm-hmm. the family that are around the house. But it, it, I believe that basically it takes a certain type of a creative person mm-hmm. to be able to do commissions well. Yes, but I think it depends on how you handle the commissions. For example, if you're a person who will say, like, I will create a whole uh, mock-up for a client saying, like, the background will be yellow, there will be a star on the top, the grass on the bottom, exactly what you will be painting. So you limit yourself right away with your creative process. So this I don't like. But if you say, look at my previous works, tell me the colors you like, and I will use my signature style, but it's not going to look exactly what you see but it's going to be my interpretation though that I like. But it's that signature style. That is like, that's the thing that I hear constantly from artists Mm -hmm. these days is everybody's trying to find a signature style. My personal opinion on that being coming from being a teacher and doing portfolio Mm -hmm. reviews. And of course going through finding my own style is basically you, you can't decide your style. Your style is sort of like, I believe this is what happens. Mm-hmm. You make work, you make work, you make work, you make work. And then suddenly you stop and you look back at the catalog of all the things you've made. Mm-hmm. And suddenly you will find something you have done that is your style. Mm-hmm. But if you try to sit there and like sit on the sofa or sit at your studio and say, I'm going to manifest a style, <laughs> it doesn't work. I totally agree that it should be of time. Like you need to look back at what you've done and decide what's the common element, what's the common trace of any works. But signature style can be different things. It might be like literally a signature that you use every time in your works. Maybe someone just create like a heart version that they will always use in their works. And it's going to be present and people will know that if there is like a small heart of that version is the work of this artist or a specific representation, like a color palette that you always use. Yeah. Well, color palette to me is definitely part of a style. Absolutely. But I mean, if you get into the idea of like an iconographic element that like Mm -hmm. that you simply were repeating in your artwork. That feels a bit more sort of graphic to me than necessarily mm-hmm. artistic. So it's just like, I've come up with this unique shape that's mine kind of thing. Like it's almost something, it's a branding or, or a logo almost kind of thing. Mm-hmm. There's a little bit of a fine line on that, I think. Yeah. Or another example of like a signature style. An artist, she 
creates portraits of animals in a Victorian, like, princess-style, like, queen-style dresses. And she paints with using dark colors and gold leaf. So every work can be easily recognizable. So that's what, like, basically is a signature style. That what she does every day, and she will be doing that. But it it's limits a lot. Yeah, I was going to say, it's like, yeah, when what if they, she suddenly wants to work? You said Elizabethan, or what was it? Yeah, like any queen... European queen of like 15 to 18th century, different dresses, basically. So you can't do any contemporary work at that point, really. So like you're kind of out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the sort of double-edged sword of like this intense desire for creative people these days to want to find a style so Mm -hmm. badly. What they don't understand is, is if they, if they end up actually finding some really great style, they're stuck with it. Yes. That's true. And that thing about finding the style is because we're all using this buzzword brand. So having a signature style will be your personal brand. And without having a personal brand, you're not going to be as successful because people are not going to recognize you. But artists, your personal brand can be also your voice or your message that you're trying to get. It's not only about the artwork. Okay. Within that, like I come from a, a school of sort of like art is about the artist basically. Mm-hmm. So like anytime you look at a piece of art, basically you're looking into the mind of the artist kind of thing. There is a large amount of artwork being produced these days, or I shouldn't say it's brand new, but it's, it seems to be substantially more prolific and more dominant of Politically motivated, ecologically mm-hmm. motivated, cause-oriented, this kind of stuff. How do you feel about the that kind of stuff in the market? Because it's not my style, but maybe I'm just old. I don't know. I share your opinion on that because going to my master's program and studying side-by-side with the MFA cohort where they were creating works. So they had to be very mindful about all the theories that they will put into their works, framing it, talking about different philosophers, as we talked earlier about all of the academics. So they have to be very mindful of that. And when they will put it into a gallery, it might fit for their thesis show, but it might not fit anywhere else. And then how to put it in someone's home if they're not into the theory or if they just want to have something pretty that makes them happy. They don't want to talk about everything else. So it's very tough for to frame yourself as having something to talk about the politics or make a commentary about the world. But why we can't make the commentary about the beautiful landscape that we saw or something simpler in a way. Well, I mean, there is that element of like, the, I have these arbitrary things that I've made up over my career, mm-hmm. which is like, there's decorative art, yeah. and then there's sort of like, uh, I put that as pretty low, like it's literally used mm-hmm. as a decoration in a mm-hmm. room. So it has not necessarily some great conceptual reason mm-hmm. behind it or intention, but it's simply assists in tying together the room let's say my mother's an interior decorator mm-hmm. so like you know i get that kind of stuff and yep. it, it it has its place in the industry mm-hmm. but they just have to realize like if you make decorative work that's what you're making and own it just say yep i make decorative work but the problem is sometimes when people who make decorative work think their work is something else 
or mm-hmm. when somebody who thinks their work is highly intellectual and conceptual and all this, but really it's just decorative. So do you think that abstract works are decorative works? Because most of the time they work with interior designers. Oh, that's that's a loaded question. I'm going to get in trouble no matter what I say. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I, oh, hmm, uh, as a general whole, I would say I'm not a personal fan. Like, in other words, I wouldn't put in my own mm-hmm. home abstract work. Um, but the but unless, and this is sort of where I, my caveat on abstract work, if the concept behind the abstract work is somehow profound or it touches me or engages mm-hmm. me in some way, the, the intention of the abstraction, what it's trying to say or doing or what it's even what it's abstracting, you know, it could be scientific mm-hmm. or whatever, then I could, I can appreciate it. But just abstract work for the sake of abstraction, I'm not, it's not my, my oeuvre, it's not my thing. Mm-hmm. But you don't think that it's decorative because from your description, no. it, yeah. Because they're in most of the time, they're not conceptual at all. Which is sad. I mean, that's, it, this is a pet peeve of mine because again, I'm an academic. So I'm in school and I, I really, really hate it. Okay, I shouldn't say hate, but I'm going to say hate. I really hate it when artists who are still in school mm-hmm. make abstraction. Because to me, school is where you learn how to, you learn the skills mm-hmm. and the craftsmanship of creating quality imagery and theoretically some concepts and maybe yeah. some business practices, whatever. And abstraction is something that is, is it, you grow into as an artist. So mm-hmm. like you start with learning the foundations of strong aesthetics, c- concepts color blending, whatever, you know, like techniques mm-hmm. and skills and craftsmanship. And then abstraction is something you grow into, but I really, have a great disdain for younger artists who start with abstraction because they don't even know what they're abstracting mm-hmm. if they start as an abstract artist. Yeah. And it also made me think that most of the abstract artists I know uh, from Toronto, especially, they're all self-taught. It's like when you go to art school, like you're practicing and you're creating a conceptual work that it's not mostly an abstract work. So people who are self-taught, they're not focusing a lot on conceptual works. Maybe not, maybe yes. And if oh, they can. That, and I know a lot yeah. of self-taught artists that are incredibly profound and well-read and have great ideas and concepts behind their works. But I understand what you're getting mm-hmm. at there. It's not the majority of them for sure. I mean, you could you could just go to Basquiat, kind of thing. Yeah. Like he, he's self-taught artist, but that doesn't ne- what didn't necessarily have the craftsmanship, the skills, or the the teachings. But yet, he's incredibly well appreciated and very expensive. So, mm-hmm. but on the flip side, there's people like Rothko, yeah, who is incredibly intellectual, or Mondrian, or mm-hmm. these kinds of people. Who I adore, like I love their abstracts works. Like if I could have a Rothko in my house, that'd be amazing. <laughs> Keep in mind that my podcast is called literally called "The Wise Fool." Like I like being foolish. I like being wrong mm-hmm. I, because, like, I'm not going to learn anything unless I throw out the stupid misconception or misunderstanding yeah. that I have and have somebody in the industry correct me that I'm in the wrong. That's how I learn. And that's amazing. I love that mission of yours. 
to make myself look like an idiot. Mm, to yeah. let everyone else learn. Through my through your looking like a fool. mistakes yeah. or not knowing something because it's okay to not know everything. No one knows everything. That's correct. But everybody knows something. Yes. <laughs> so trying to find that thing that you know that I can somehow get out of you and I'll give to the, the listeners, that's what I'm trying to do. Okay. So curating. I am fascinated with the industry of curating. Mm -hmm. um, when I was in high school, they make us take this aptitude test to like basically like job careers that mm -hmm. they think are the best due to your personality traits. And they told me, they gave everybody two jobs. They always give them two. One was I was supposed to be a curator. And they said specifically because I like working alone. <laughs> and the second one was is that I should be a mortician, mm -hmm. which I found fascinating that curatorial and mortician are similar. But anyways, the job of an independent curator is a reasonably new thing mm -hmm. in the industry. Um, so like, how does that work for you? Because I've heard stories specifically more here in Europe, maybe it exists elsewhere, I don't know, that independent curators can sometimes work with commercial galleries and they will curate exhibitions for commissions on the sales. Yes, that happens a lot. Every time in a commercial gallery, um, you either pay a rental fee just to have a show in a gallery that will cover the costs of the gallery, or you will bring the artist and you will share the percentage. It's not going to be 50-50, but it probably will be like 30 to the gallery, 70 to the organizer. And how he will div divide it between themselves and the artist, I don't know. Oh, you just jumped a whole lot of steps here. I'm so confused. Start that over. You will rent a gallery space for an exhibition. Yeah, so I don't know Wait, how it's so you working. pay money. Yes, I don't know how it's in Europe, but in Toronto, Canada, you can rent a gallery or you can rent a venue space. That so wait, I could go to New York and rent the Bar Mary Boone Gallery and have an exhibition of my work. I don't know. You have to ask them. <laughs> but some galleries, when they don't have shows or they don't curate shows in advance, like 12, I don't know, two years in advance, and they have gaps. They will rent out the gallery and say like any curator or an artist also can pay a fee and host a show. Wow. Okay. But the, that, so it's, it has nothing to do with the gallery. So the gallery, they basically, they're not saying we, we represent this artist or we no. put our name and reputation on this exhibition. They will put their name on the flyers. They will send newsletters to invite people to come to the show. But depends. So that's really what you're paying for is you're yeah. paying for their you're mailing list. You're paying for marketing. You're paying for the venue itself. And to put it like to have it in your resume, maybe as a name, you had a show in this X gallery. But wait, that sounds like a little bit of a, a lie. <laughs> like, because, like, if I went and, ha and, and went to Gagosian mm -hmm. and, had, and rented Gagosian and said, yes, I had an exhibition at Gagosian, that's kind of a lie because I didn't have an exhibition at Gagosian. I rented the space. Yes. So that's a little bit of a, a fib. It depends. Like, sometimes galleries have their curators help the artist or the independent curator curate the show in that gallery. 
maybe they help you with hanging the works and designing how to curate the show. But sometimes you just rent the space. And how many of these have you done? I've done most of them that I've done. I wasn't working with a gallery. I was renting a venue mm -hmm. that looked like a gallery. So they had good lighting. They had white walls. And I didn't need to share the percentage with anyone. It was just artists getting the money. And I was getting okay. paid as an art agent for curating that show. So that worked really well. But in that case, you need to have your own contacts that you will invite. Right. How do you show. find contacts? Like, don't get me wrong. I have my Facebook friends. And I'm sure <laughs> I can find their emails. And I'm sure I could. I, I don't even know how to. But like, how do you, I mean, how do you even build a, a mailing list, even though tech, I'm doing air quotes because nobody uses mail anymore. I mean, it's mm -hmm. uh, basically you do Facebook events these days mm -hmm. to, to like create a, an event. But like, how do you get new people that you don't already know interested in your events and mm -hmm. your artists and all this? Of course, you will invite your family and friends and they will be part of the show, but they're not going to buy it. But for promotion... It's going to be a lot of things. It's going to be Facebook. We have a lot of online platforms as like an event platforms where you can just post free or paid tickets depending on the event. So people know where to go to get the ticket. Magazines. We have a lot of magazines where you can post an information about your events for free. So a lot of people go and check what's going on this week. They go to that website. So they see, sure, oh, like there is an exhibition. Out. Yes, I need to go. Some artists, and I really recommend it, do like the legwork. They will print small flyers. They will go around the neighborhood where the show will be. Maybe like coffee shops. They will ask, can I put a flyer of my upcoming show? Can I leave some promotional materials? Do you want to come? So talk to people, like describe what's happening. And of course, social media, etc. And building the newsletter, you will start with a small list. Don't be discouraged because everyone will start with like five, 10 people on it. But you need to tell people constantly, like on your posts, for example, I have a newsletter. I send exciting, exclusive news. Sign up. Go to my website. <laughs> Nobody wants to know about what's going on in my life. It would be a newsletter of like, no. yeah, I'm, I'm not making anything right now because I ran out of money to buy art supplies, so not doing anything. But I would say like it also motivates you. For example, like when I started, I have people signing up only when I have shows. And now I have like at least one person sign up for my newsletter every day. And that makes me motivated to create content because people signed for my newsletter for a reason. They want to learn about what I do, what is happening, what shows I'm creating. So I have to share that. Okay. You mentioned something a long time ago, mm -hmm. and I'm going to bring it back up, which was getting new, getting articles written in magazines. Mm -hmm. I would love to hear how you pull that one off. Yes, yeah, so it definitely depends on the magazine because I was working with an artist and she was like, do a whole research about like Canadian and US based magazines or at the time of art fairs, for example, where we can feature my works. So every time I will write to a high, well-established magazine, they will say like the cheapest one will be about like 4,000, 5,000 feature in our one page one page of our magazine and I will say like, oh my God, that's so expensive and not worth Wait, 
So these are magazines that are saying, we'll do a profile about your artist, but for yes. this amount of money. Yes. Well, but that's not really an article then. That's a paid advertisement. It is. But you can also try like in Toronto, for example, we have a big magazine. I think it's called like Blog Toronto, now magazine. So mm -hmm. they have part of their featuring is they feature homes, how people renovate homes. So mm -hmm. artists usually apply to be featured and show their homes and they do like small renovations to just show their works. But and that's, that's for free. Cunning. Yes, that's more cunning. That's that's <laughs> that's interesting. Getting articles written. So mm -hmm. like I'm more interested in like how do you get an article written by the magazine or the publication? Cold emailing talk. It's cold emailing. I wanted a trick. I want you to give me a, a, a statistical thing that I can just quantify and just say, okay, if I do X, Y, Z, this will work. And I will also say, like, start with the smaller magazines or independents. I would call them bloggers or some people who, like, in the art industry, they might not work in the gallery, but they're super interested in the art world and they have some sort of publication it may be like a small magazine or whatever you start reaching out to them you start get articles if if that happens but most of the time like smaller magazines are also excited to get some good stories especially if you know like maybe have a plan and say i'm an artist not just say i want to have an interview but say like i have something special that i want to share and you, right. so you right you away need to pitch them a, yeah, a story, basically. Tell them like you don't want them to do the whole homework of what to talk about you, but you will say like I can talk about this, this, and that. This is like the show, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Like something special that will mm -hmm. be exciting for them to feature. Yeah, but coming up with that like hook mm -hmm. like, that that's hard. It is because you got to capture their attention mm -hmm. in a unique way. But also without being, well, outrageous in some way that they're going to come in thinking like, oh, here's a nutty person kind of thing. Like you, you have to be somewhat professional mm -hmm. and somewhat eloquent, but also unique and authentic, but working within the same constraints as everybody else. So like that's, you know, mm -hmm. it's basically you need to be nonconformist and creative and unique, but do it in the same way as everybody else. Sure. And also, I forgot to mention that, like, in the time right now of the technology time, you don't need always to get, like, written articles. You can also apply to a lot of podcasts where you can talk <laughs> and share your story. And that helps a lot to grab attention in many ways. So you have found podcasting to be very effective and helpful to you? Yes. Okay. How long have you been doing podcasting? I started doing mine last September. I wanted to do it long, long, long time ago, but it's like a personal thing. I didn't want to. I was like, who will listen to it? I don't know. Maybe it's, it will be just me <laughs> listening to this podcast. Well, at first, it always will be just you, yes. Yes. But then like, as I started releasing the podcast and I got a lot of comments saying like, we had a strong voice on your Instagram, like we really enjoyed your viewpoint and now you're sharing it on podcast too, another platform, like that's exciting use. 
And I realized, so maybe I'm not going to be interviewed or maybe artists, they're not going to be interviewed a lot, but they can also start their own podcasts. They can share like even five minutes a week where you're in a studio and you think, oh, I have a creative block. Artists have creative blocks. Maybe I will share what I'm doing about how to overcome that creative block. If I had a nickel for every time I heard a story about how to overcome creative <laughs> block, I'd be rich because, but everybody's way of getting over creative block. Like here, here, I'll give you my two cents mm -hmm. on creative blo blocks. Some, I don't know where I got this philosophy, but basically it's like, if you're somehow blocked, I also call it like if you're depressed or whatever mm -hmm. like that, like it's, it's like you're in the deep end of a swimming pool and you're halfway down. Mm -hmm. So you, you, you have nothing to touch. So like you're just floating in water. So you can't get up very easily. It would take you a lot of effort to swim up. And, and so I basically say like, embrace it, just be blocked, be mm -hmm. depressed, whatever. And you will fall to the bottom. And then it just takes a little touch at the bottom and you can push yourself back up to the top. There you go. I love it. So it's just embrace it and just be it. And that's fine. It's part of the artistic process. And then if you just, if you let it be, you'll just find one little thing that will just change your attitude and it'll set you back on the right path. Exactly. Like we can't be productive or creative 24 seven. We can just. As much as we wish we could be. <laughs> close the studio door and decide like today I'll be just walking outside in the park. And I allow myself to do nothing because a lot of people just can't do that. They say like, I'm not allowed to go outside and do nothing. Like what's to do nothing thing? It doesn't exist. I have to create something. It's a big problem for everyone. Oh, it's like, that sounds like my life. What's, I don't understand. <laughs> what's wrong with that? Especially now, like a lot of people, we are staying home. It's the time to do nothing. Allow ourselves to slow down after all of this. Rest. I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> I am busier now than I have ever been because I, what, what, well, no, but what's great is this is going to sound really self-serving, but because everybody's under quarantine throughout the world, I run a podcast. Now this podcast, I recently just started using mm -hmm. Squadcast, which makes it so that I can do this remotely. Well, that means that literally all of my potential guests, they're also in quarantine and mm -hmm. they have all the time in the world. So all of a sudden, anybody I want to talk to is also quarantined. Yes, works for me too. <laughs> I have the greatest access to everybody that I that oftentimes when we're not in quarantine would mm -hmm. be like, oh no, I'm too busy. I don't have time. I'm whatever. But actually the quarantine for podcasters is quite quite great because everybody we've got a, a, a we've got a quarantined set of guests waiting to keep themselves entertained by talking to anybody new and different so it's quite mm -hmm. lovely yeah same thing here record a lot of podcasts every day <laughs> wait how many podcasts do you record in a day i can do two to three and, okay and then like i would i also spend time like market them promote them creating the whole structure of the podcast, like the intro and the final, like the ending clause. So it's a lot of work. Oh, I know. Yeah. Yeah. I, but, and I don't even do intros or any of that kind of stuff. It's uh, it's a lot more work than people think it is for mm -hmm. sure. A lot of people think it's just sitting in front of a microphone talking with a friend, but there's a lot more to it than that. And yeah. I wish more people understood it. But, but what whatever. we're doing, it's more like a hobby for us, right? We are not no, 
No. This is my professional career. No, I'm kidding. I don't make any money from this <laughs> yet. Yet. But uh, I'm what it well, the it's interesting because when I started the podcast, I thought about the idea of like, okay, great, podcasters, they get advertisers and sponsors. And then I said, oh, but wait, my topic is this incredibly niche thing that most people that listen to podcasts don't really give a shit about. So how am I going to find an advertiser or a sponsor that's willing to basically pay enough money for a super niche topic like the fine arts, mm -hmm. not even fine art, visual arts. So not, so not even all art, just visual art. And what I realized is since I'm in Europe, the mm -hmm. actually the better way to go is grants. So there are a lot of arts grants. That's good for for you guys because here, um, no. There are a lot of grants no. in Canada. Not for podcasters, so like medium arts. It's more for like curation and exhibition. We have a grant, but well, not for just just say the podcast is about curation. So there you go. That's what I did. The grant, yeah. I, ju I just wrote a grant. It took me three weeks to write this freaking thing. I really hope to, to God I get this thing. Mm -hmm. But it, it it was about art criticism. Mm -hmm. that, that's the topic that, that they were willing to fund. So I just said, okay, we're talking about critical topics in the arts. There, it's art criticism. So, yeah, but the, but the grant was not for podcasts. Mm -hmm. The grant was for art criticism. And I just said I'm do I happen to be doing a podcast that's about art criticism. Yeah, that's a good there. way to look at it. I've never thought about it. Well, that's what you have to do because nobody gives grants to podcasters, mm -hmm. which is actually not true. There is one in Finland or Norway. I can't remember. One of those two places there actually is a grant for podcasters. Mm-hmm. But for sponsors, what works for me is to reach out to printing house or someone who is supplying some sort of service or products to artists and art community. Who are my main listeners? Or art industry people like printing shops, for example, who I can promote on my shows. Yeah, I need to get out and do that more. I'm already bad enough with social media, <laughs> bad enough with marketing myself. Like somebody, I did like 52 podcasts until mm -hmm. somebody finally mentioned to me that I'd never even mentioned my own website. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean the, the podcast website. I mean my own artwork website, like literally myself. I had never mentioned it in like 50 some podcasts. I am such a bad marketer. It's ridiculous. <laughs> We always learn. So it's a good thing that someone mentioned that and it's time to improve. And there's going to be always something we're missing, but that's okay. I know. It just feels like the story of my life is learning through mistakes. I want to learn through success sometime. But having mistakes, it's also a good thing to have because without mistakes, you're not learning. You're not experimenting then I am one of the most learned people out there, <laughs> which is fine. I'll take that. That's why I titled my podcast what I titled it. But all right. So you've been marvelous. Thank you very much. You've given me more than enough time. So Thank you very much. I really appreciate you reaching out and inviting me to be a guest on your podcast. I had a really great conversation and good luck with everything you're doing. And you're doing great. Great.